Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, Michael Craig Martin on his book On Being an Artist. On Selected Press Criticism of Me... Over the years, I have been described by critics as narrow-minded, manipulative, sinister, perverse, fraudulent, conspiratorial, totalitarian, evil, a card-carrying hatchet man, the calculating Trotsky of British contemporary art, a darling of the Sirota tendency, the gowlighter of goldsmiths, the panjundrum of British art, a pop artist, a minimalist, a conceptualist, A minimalist conceptualist, not a household name, a man with no style, deserving only derision, better known as a teacher than an artist, an Irish artist, an American artist, a British artist, the celebrated Anglo-Irish-American artist, a failed artist, number 608 out of 612 in the Tatler list of people who really matter, the most hated man in British art. On selected press criticism of my work. Over the years, my work has been described by critics as cold, machine like, lacking in emotion, impersonal, English looking, a waste of space, a waste of money, a waste of a beautiful gallery, a flagrant ripoff of Caulfield and Adami, not particularly exciting to look at or think about, boring, vile. Color nauseating in its bright, deliberate dissonance. Vulgar, decorative, a confusing combination of the didactic and the commercial. A lot to pay for nothing happening. A conjuring trick, seductively clever, intellectual, too intellectual, pseudo-intellectual, mindless, featureless, banal, half-empty, empty, dead, same old thing. It does kill me reading those. Every time I read them, I just think they're so. It's so wonderfully funny when you, when you read it all together. It's wonderfully absurd, isn't it? Every single word is a quote. There you heard Dublin-born visual artist Michael Craig Martin reading an excerpt from his book on being an artist, on press criticism, on his work, and on himself. Michael Craig Martin is celebrated the world over for his own distinctive work. He's also known for having taught many of Britain's best-known contemporary artists, including Sarah Lucas, Damien Hirst and Gary Hume. Now his book on being an artist, laid out in 150 short chapters, puts a particular shape on a remarkable life and mind. Shortly we'll hear Michael Craig Martin himself in conversation in his London studio, but first I spoke with art critic and writer Aidan Dunn and began by asking him about the significance of Michael Craig Martin. He's been an enormously significant artist in a, in a world sense and uh, throughout Europe he's been extraordinarily popular and one of the surprising things about Michael is that he's had this amazing late period where his career has blossomed to an extraordinary degree throughout Europe and in the United States and in the East. And no one could have guessed that that would happen. Can we talk about signature work in relation to his art? And if so, how would you describe that? OK, a signature Michael Craig Martin would probably be large, 
brightly coloured, what we might call a still life, except that it, it would consist of a number of objects outlined in black outline, very brightly coloured in flat areas, as likely to be outdoors as indoors, immediately visually arresting and quite attractive. At one stage, his colours, his palette was described as being like eye candy, you know, uh, slightly disparagingly, but, but actually he wants you to look at it and to be drawn in and then to deal with the issues of, well, what am I looking at here? He's often credited with having brought conceptual art into mainstream British and Irish contemporary art. In what way did he do that? Uh, well, he, he did that uh, partly through example and partly through influence. He remarked once that when he, when he was in America in, in the early 1960s, he could see how people looked at the prevalent style when he arrived when he arrived at art school was abstract expressionism. And he could see that that wasn't really engaging with the wider population. But with the advent of pop art, he saw that, wow, this could reach a mass audience very effectively. And he saw that happen. And the same thing happened then with conceptualism, minimalism, conceptualism in America. He could see that it was incredibly uh, successful and popular among artists and among a kind of an artistic elite but it didn't have a general kind of appeal. And when he came to address conceptual himself, he might have gone in that direction. From his early work, you think some of it was very dry and theoretical. And there were a number of figures like, say, Joseph Kosuth in, uh, in America, who continued to go down that road and became more and more dry and intellectual and linguistic. And uh, at, a, at, a, at a certain point in the late 70s, it's almost as if uh, Michael said, well, I'm not actually going to do that. And I think if we look back to an article that he probably read in 1958 in America by Alan Caprao, where Alan Caprao was very influential in the development of performance art. And he said, in the future, artists will be able to deal with ordinary life in terms of ordinary things. And that's almost like a blueprint for, for what Michael went on to do. His notion was that you should be able to describe everyday life and reality in terms of everyday things. And that that is what he set out to do in a very sophisticated conceptual way. But it's not intimidating and it's not off-putting. Anyone can appreciate it. And that's been his significant strength ever since. He's he's very clear as well in his own vision for his work, isn't he? And we, we read that in the book. We hear it in talking to him. Yes. And he, he's, he's passionate. He's clear. He knows exactly what he's about. He knows exactly what he's about. And I think, and not being facetious, there's something Beckettian about him in that way in that he loves plainness of language and dealing with things directly. He's very, and this might sound like an awful thing to say, but he's very literal-minded in the very best sense of the term, in that if he wants to say A, he won't say B and refer to A. He will say A, uh, and that's what I'm talking about. That That's entirely to his credit. Who are and were Craig Martin's artistic peers, um, and, and what makes him different to those others? In the early stage, when his, his kind of his vision was forming, you could say that Alan Caprao was probably quite important in, in that way. The Bruce Nauman, who he, is, he has actually said himself, is immensely. And I think if you look at Bruce Nauman's work, you can see clear links. Then in England, I think there's a whole generation of uh, sculptors that he would fit in with, roughly. Bruce McLean, Bill Woodrow, Tony Cragg, Richard Deacon. They all would have something in common. But the thing about Michael is that 
you couldn't really identify him with a specific school or a group in that from early on he had a very uh, independent voice and went on to develop that. So although you can see that he relates uh, not only to his immediate contemporaries but to a painter like um, Ferdinand Leger and to others of an earlier era, it's his own voice always with incredible independence of spirit. Aidan, could you tell us about Craig Martin's celebrated work, A Noak Tree? How did it come to being and would you set it in the context of his art before he made it and afterwards? It's one of his most extreme conceptual pieces in a way. It's it's like where he reached uh, an extremity of concept and he actually said later at some stage that it was one piece where he felt that he was able to do exactly what he wanted to do and to say exactly what he wanted to say and it kind of summed up something. So it was an extreme. Now, an oak tree is not, of course, an oak tree. It's actually a glass of water sitting on a little glass bathroom shelf that was put on the gallery wall. And next to it hangs a printout of a kind of Socratic dialogue that he wrote, which is how he's explaining that this is not a glass of water you're looking at. It is, in fact, an oak tree because I'm an artist and I've decided that it's going to be an oak tree. And that had an enormous impact. In a way, it's like a, a... a replay with a variation on, on Duchamp's famous urinal where he signed a urinal and it became something else. But uh, Michael took it one stage further and he said, it's not that this is a glass on a shelf. This is actually an oak tree. And um, it influenced an awful lot of people and it sort of opened up the territory for a lot of people. I think they, they felt much freer to do things than they had before. For Michael himself, even though it's probably the the most often quoted and the one that is in the history books as being a kind of definitive work. It was like an extremity and it's almost as if he decided that he didn't want to go there anymore. And if you look at his work after that, the direction slightly changed into being uh, these much more general and accessible kind of imagery and treatment so that you, you don't need an intellectual kind of debate about it. You, you can sort of see what he's getting at if you put your mind to it and you can take it at several different levels. Is that piece a primarily about challenging perception and and expectation. It is, and it's about imagination, I think. It has been uh, said more than once that he, he did he did have a Catholic education and that if you think of transubstantiation in, in the Mass, that may have affected the way that he thought about it. And I think that's a reasonable proposition, actually. But it is, it is about the idea that what an artist creates has to do with an act of imagination and you shouldn't be tied to conditions of, of an object or a material. So if, if, if bread and wine can become if body bre- and blood, body and blood a glass of water can, a glass of water can be an oak tree. And in fact, uh, as it happened, when the work of art arrived in Australia for an exhibition famously, it was impounded by customs because the, uh, the, in the customs information it said an oak tree and the customs officer said, no plants are allowed in the country, I'm sorry. And Michael had himself to go and explain that although it was titled an oak tree, There was no oak or tree involved and it actually was a sort of bathroom appliance with a bit of water. (laughs) Three elements, uh, colour, drawing and scale. Could you tell me about those in relation to Michael Craig Martin's work? For a lot lot of his early work particularly was was monochromatic and and generally black and white and you thought that he was never actually going to approach colour. But while he was at Yale, he had done Joseph Albers' colour course the colour course that, that came from the Bauhaus originally in, in Germany and uh, Joseph Albers was teaching at Yale and Michael Craig Martin has said that that course taught him literally everything that he knew about colour was contained in that and it was as if he absorbed all this at the time in 1963 or 64 but it took until around I think it was 1980 or thereabouts where he suddenly 
began to use colour in a very strategic way in his work. That has taken off and become extraordinary. One of the most attractive things about his work is his use of colour, and he uses it uh, both in a small scale and on a, on a large scale. Scale is relevant to him in that early on as well, he decided that he would work on the basis of very small drawings. Everything is based on a small drawing, but they are not scale-specific. They are like blueprints that you can execute on uh, on any scale, so that it could be six inches square, or it could equally be six meters square. And that, he's done that throughout his career very successfully. He said at one stage that he'd like to feel that he could get on a plane with just a roll of tape and a sketch in his pocket and do an enormous show off in Munich or somewhere. And that is because he would, he would uh, project the, the drawing onto the wall, do the outlines in adhesive tape, and there's, there's your, your epic monumental composition done with the so, minimum so of resources. It, so really the three elements link together very clearly and drawing and scale in particular. Drawing and scale and colour, they're all... Then the colour is more to do with maybe creating a kind of environment, drawing in the eye and drawing in the senses. And um, uh, that's been incredibly successful, particularly in, if you look at the architectonic um, installations that he's done, which are very beautiful. And he's done many of them and, and is in huge demand. You can see why to do them because you're, you're entering a kind of um, an entire field of colour. It's not just that you're looking at a, an object or a painting or a coloured thing, but you're actually in a coloured environment. Aidan, Michael Craig Martin has talked about the, the physicalization of ideas and, and that notion of the idea be, almost being made physical is, is a, a very interesting one in relation it, to his work. It is, you know, he does it in a very direct, simple way. And that is that if, if you look at the general, the general kind of images that he uses, they're entirely commonplace. And that's, that's expressly and, and deliberately so. But... His point is that each of those commonplace things are things that we are intimately familiar with and that they form part of our lives. And somehow they have this immense power to convey the kind of physicalness of experience and the materiality of experience in a way that transcends their apparent anodyne quality. That is to say now, if you say you treat a glass of wine, an iPhone, a razor, things, these are are things we encounter and use every day. And you don't generally think of them as um, being expressive. But when you write them large, put them together, you can construct extraordinary kind of inferred stories from what you see. And they also uh, speak directly to your own experience. So it's like these uh, physical manifestations of ordinary things. He's able to uh, bring us into realms in, in, our, in our own thoughts and feelings. We would not have thought we were being led in those directions, but we are. So almost at a, a subconscious level. At a subconscious level, yes, because we find we're engaging with those things without really intending to. There you heard art critic Aidan Dunn on the art of Michael Craig Martin. So how does Michael Craig Martin see himself? Here he reads an excerpt from his book entitled On Me. On Me. I am a natural sceptic. I respect accomplishment, but am suspicious of authority and dubious of received wisdom. I have always needed to prove things for myself, to see with my own eyes, to be my own witness. When my views are based on the authority of my own experience, I have great confidence in them. To the frequent irritation of my friends and colleagues, I often think I know best about everything. They tell me I am becoming more dogmatic with age, an accusation I categorically deny. I believe I am a pragmatist, an enthusiast, an optimist, and a fatalist. 
I value my capacities highly, but I am also painfully aware of my limitations. I do not think I harbor delusions about my abilities. Though I am a controller and a perfectionist, I am not naturally orderly or tidy. There always seems to be aspects of my life that are slipping into chaos and confusion and require rescuing. I am highly critical, not least of myself. I am sympathetically fascinated by the capacities of others, particularly those capacities I do not share. I am fortunate in being neither frightened nor jealous of the intelligence, talent, or success of others. I am privileged to have known and learned from brilliant and extraordinary people, both older and younger than myself, over the whole course of my life. Kleena Nyandun caught up with Michael Craig Martin in his London studio and began by asking him to describe the place where so much of his work is fabricated. I have a wonderful studio that's now centrally located in London. Uh, I have a big office where I spend a lot of time, books, computers, working like that. And then next door is the actual studio where uh, work is fabricated. In general, in the studio, we make paintings here. I make paintings. We're we're in an area in London where there's a lot of work going on. Are there other studios in this area? There are other art studios, and we're we're very close to uh, we're on the border of Shoreditch and Hoxton, which you know twenty years ago were p- places where there were still lots of artists. Of course, what's happened over the period is these places have become extremely fashionable. They've become very expensive. Uh, the possibility of having what I've got here for anybody else to do this now is almost impossible. For me, a studio is like uh, it's like the the representation of one's head. It's a kind of, it's a kind of space that is what you're thinking, and for better or worse, it's, sometimes it's empty and sometimes it's, it's overcrowded. But but it, I, I like that physicalization of things, which I think is also very important in my work. This idea of the physicalization of things. The fact that you're Irish, you lived in America, you came to England, you're. A person of many places, somebody with a great vantage point, maybe, as a result. Talk about the geographies of Michael Craig Martin. I was born in Dublin during the war, but my parents, who both came from Dublin, were living in London during the war. My father worked for the British Food Ministry. My parents had been living in London, I suppose, for several years before the war, and they loved living there. Then when I was about to be born, my mother thought it safer to go back to Dublin to have me with her family in Dublin. So I was born in Dublin, but then a few weeks later, we went back to London. And then at the end of the war, my father uh, went to America for the conferences that were setting up international organizations. The, The result was that he joined the World Bank, which was just being formed, and that was put in Washington, D.C., So we ended up living in Washington, D.C., and that was where I grew up. Now, you have a lovely description in the book about arriving into America through Canada, the river lit up, and is that something you've maybe reimagined, or was it like that? Is it something that lingered with you? It's interesting that you ask it that way about whether it's a true memory. I don't know. It's it's been in my imagination for so long, I can no longer tell 
but I do have a sense of the of arriving in America, arriving in Canada on a small ship. Maybe it wasn't even a passenger ship, maybe a freight ship. The boat going under brightly lit bridges and coming from the blackout of London. It was so astonishing to see lots of lights. That's the that's the memory that stayed with me. Very much that that image of America, of the brightness, the newness, the freshness, the post-war feeling of possibility and you talk about this throughout the book in in different ways yes i was very uh, of course very very fortunate because uh, certainly if my parents had stayed in britain which was the most likely thing that that would have happened in normal circumstances we'd have gone through all the years of post-war austerity we didn't and we were in america which at the time was had come out of the war vastly richer and the only place on earth that was really well off. Uh, And over my childhood, my father had home leave every three years. So every three years we would come back. We always stopped in London, but we spent most of the time in Dublin, staying with my grandparents. So I became very familiar with my grandparents with and and with Ireland of of going out into the country, seeing my uncle who had a farm, a sense of being part of this other place but it was it was also very clear to me that this place was much poorer than where I was coming from. as I grew older, I started to realize how astonishing this place was, and I have wonderful memories of the house and the visits coming from suburban post war America, where everything is new, there's new cars, new appliances, new, everything is vibrant. It's, it is, the, I grew up in 50s America, it's the kind of golden age of, me, of America. And then coming to Dublin, and I can remember at my grandfather's house, cars with the, whatever the horses are, with the, the great white feet, coming with wicker baskets of the laundry. So it was, it was almost like changing centuries, like change, it, it was such a different world. And I feel very fortunate that I knew Europe before Europe recovered fully. So I had a real experience of the old world. And I remember when when I came to live in Britain in the mid-60s, I was quite shocked because people were much more, if I may say so, materialistic than Americans because all of these objects we took for granted in America were still objects of enormous desire in Britain. People were much more conscious of them. We weren't conscious of these things because they they were everywhere and they'd always been there since I was a child and you never thought about them. Uh, the thing, that, the thing I, I think that I got in America is an idea about modernity, about everything to do with the modern world. Uh, so I was very interested in American cars. When, during, uh, during the period when all the cars had fins in the 50s, I knew every model of every car. I, I, even today, if there's a 50s Dodge goes down the street, I can tell you that it is a Dodge and I know what year it is. I, I consider myself part of the first generation of teenagers I still have a kind of abiding love of early rock and roll songs from the mid and late 50s in in America with really simple, simple-minded lyrics, stupid teenage dreams, you know, Sweet 16 and all these. And, but I was Sweet 16. I was 16. 
they spoke to us very, very. All those songs were were very simple and very great. They weren't they weren't overproduced yet. That, that all that business of of massive production hadn't occurred yet. The kind of music that that was being made was very straightforward. I see that as having had an impact on my idea about culture, about how something speaks to people. So there are many ways in which an idea about uh, the new world of being interested in new architecture, new design, new that's and that's always how I've uh, seen myself as being interested. I have great respect for the past, but it doesn't interest me in the way that what's here right now does. Was there a presence of art culture in the house growing up, or maybe in the house in Dublin? In the book, you mentioned that you got excited when you met the idea of of art in itself and what the possibilities of it were, the freedom of it. But was that in your background, or was that something that was you, Michael Craig Martin, discovering yourself? My mother was interested in music, in classical music, by some odd coincidence, because it can only be a coincidence, because there's there's no context for it. There was a reproduction of a Picasso Blue Period painting that hung in our living room a child uh, taking some food from a bowl. Uh, and, and my father was interested in DIY, and he got all those magazines like Popular Science and Popular Mechanics. And I remember one of the things I always loved in those magazines, people did their houses over. People would have a, a bungalow and add a porch patio or something like that, or put in a new wing with a and so there were before and after pictures and I really was very fascinated by this idea of these kinds of transformations of things but it is only in high school that I have uh, teachers who introduce me to first in art to impressionism and then impressionism post-impressionism and then to cubism and then to towards so each thing is kind of building on the other and then in high school I talk in the book a lot about a friend of mine and we were both we were kind of teenage culture vultures between us we were interested in everything and that was really quite exciting in Washington at the time because Washington was notoriously cultureless there there, may, there were museums but but very very few galleries but of course by being small, it meant you were possible to do virtually everything, which is what we did. This might be Richard Kavner you're talking about. Yes. He's amongst many that get their own chapter in, in the book. I take it then that each of those people would be very, very important to you. I'm bringing this up because I think anything that's in the book, you put it there for a reason. You're right. I have put in chapters about uh, certain people who have been of enormous importance to me in my life. And sometimes they're uh, people who died years ago, or they, you know, there was no reason for anybody to know about them. Uh, but they, they're very, they loom very large for me, and I wanted to be sure that they were part of the record. It might just bring us around to talking about the book, how it came about. I think Andrew... Brown asked or made the suggestion that you would gather your writing. Well, Andrew, Andrew came to me. I'd known Andrew before. He had worked for Thames and Hudson. He started his own small publishing company, and he came to me and said he wanted to do a, a book of my writing. So I had thought about this on and off over the years, and I said yes. I, I spent days and weeks 
pulling together things from all these different places. And I was astonished by how much there was. I had my first computer since the early 90s, and I originally got the computer with the idea of word processing. And as soon as I got the computer, I must have written three or four times as much in the years from the, in, from the 90s on as I did in the previous period, because it was so... I liked writing, but it was so tedious, and I'm a very slow writer and very tedious at constantly rewriting. Whereas with the computer, you can that's exactly what the computer allows you to cut and paste. But, and what he did was, eventually, he extracted the best bits from these things. It was obviously a great deal of repetition. He'd got rid of that. Some of the most important things I've written were in parts of lecture, formal lectures, and I had never had the confidence to give such a lecture without reading it. So they were completely written, an hour-long lecture. I'd also shown 200 slides, and without the slides, and without, uh, they were boring. So what he did, he would, he would pull out bits. And then from that came the idea that that's how the book should be. Very short sections, one or two, par- one or two sentences even, to some that are pages long. So the, the, the book would kind of shape itself. Then it became obvious that there were certain things I'd never written about, but they were needed. So I would write then a bit, and then we'd put that into the book. So, it, But it was a, a really amazing process, and perfect, because that's just, that is the way I think. It seems absolutely perfect to me. But the book was a, also quite, obviously, a kind of revelation to me, too. I knew I'd had a pretty interesting life, but it sounded, turned out it was more interesting than I'd realized. One element, of course, is, is the whole art education scene. Mm-hmm. And you're very well known as somebody who has been involved in the area of education and art. You cover that by setting up your own journey. Yes. Well, the only thing, as soon as I found out about it, from the time I was about 12 or 13, I did have this idea that I would want to be an artist. Uh, I went to very ordinary uh, schools, which were essentially academic schools. America, uh, certainly in in those days, was just considered most things that were cultural, particularly paint. I mean, maybe music was all right, but anything else was considered... A bit ridiculous. It wasn't proper a proper thing to do or to study. I became conscious that when I came to England, there is a generic type known as an art student. You know, you can say John Lennon was an art student. He wasn't an artist, but he was an art student, and uh, and everybody understands that. So I never knew anybody who went to art school. I'd never met anybody who'd done that. I didn't know anything about it, and so my journey to which ended up with Yale, which was. Uh, it was luck because I, I mean, the, the one thing I say I, I, that I realized looking back on my life is that I'm not a particularly brave person, but I did show a lot of courage at very odd times. It, you know, going and finding myself, at, yeah, to getting myself to Yale, I, nobody helped me. I, I, don't, I don't ever remember even having a conversation with my father about it except asking him to pay the fees once I was there. And coming to England, I mean, it was a kind of mad thing to do. And I feel like all through my life I've done things that were blindly courageous or risk-taking, risk-taking, more risk-taking than anything else, but without ever properly understanding maybe the full implications of the <laughs> the risk involved. Um, I didn't even know there was an art school at Yale until I was seeking advice there and the person I was speaking to said, well, why don't you come here? And, it, and, and then it turned out that it was the most important art school in America, and I was not, not only was it the most wonderful school, but I happened to hit it at probably its best years. There were 
incredible people there. Richard Serra and Bryce Martin and Chuck Close were all graduate students there when I arrived. It's this very, very green undergraduate in my Windsor Newton paint box. You might tell us about the, the still life class that you've included in the book. You learned an important lesson that day, you mentioned. You can always change the instruction to make it your oh, own. Yes. When I arrived at, at Yale, the, I was an undergraduate, and the, the art school is essentially a graduate, is a, is a graduate school. But you were able, as an undergraduate, to major, as you say in America, in, in fine art. So I was majoring in painting, but there weren't enough to have a program or a course, so they just threw us in with the graduate students. So I found myself in my first day at art school in a room with six or seven graduate students. One of the people was Richard Serra, and we had a very conservative tutor called William Bailey, and he uh, he was famous for painting absolutely exquisitely perfect eggs, a very simple, pure things, but the ones that are memorable of the eggs. He asked the class if we would all, he wanted us all to paint a still life so we, he could see you know, what we were like, what we were up to. All the graduate students were absolutely outraged by being insulted, by being asked this absurd, demeaning thing, because I was quite pleased, because at least I knew what a still life was. But everybody did it. And I set up my, you know, a, a basket of apples and a wine bottle. And, you know, you know, my knowledge of still lives was very much to do with Cezanne's still lives. And um, uh, then I watched in astonishment at R- Richard Serra, who took a metal dustbin that was in, the room, in each of the studios, and he put it on top of a table, and he got a canvas, more or less the same size and shape as the dustbin, and he did a violent painting in black and white and slash and paint of the dustbin and the dustbin virtually filled the canvas it was a wonderful painting I, I, you know but it was it just amazed me the thing that uh, that i realized from it was that richard had shown me uh, you could go against the rule you could break the rules while actually performing. You could do the thing that you were being asked to do and at the same time subvert it. And that's an amazing lesson to, for a young person to get. And it was so astonishing that he understood this so clearly. There's also the story you tell about when you came to Yale, you were called up to the principal, the president, the person in charge, and you wondered had you done something wrong. You might tell us about that as well, because would it be true that a lot of these lessons you were learning, you were, you were storing them up maybe for eventually when you would become a teacher, when you would become an educator, an influencer? T- tell us about that, that meeting in Yale. Well, I think, I think you're certainly right that, when one, that you know, one's experience of education, whether good or bad, does formulate help formulate your idea about how to be a teacher yourself if that's how you and what you end up becoming just after i got to yale i received a message from the dean asking me to go and go and see him and i was very nervous i'm already in trouble i've only been here a week and i got there and uh he said uh mr craig martin i want to congratulate you on getting accepted here at yale it's very, very difficult to get in here. It was very competitive and very difficult. You've really achieved something very significant by doing this. Now, 
we want you to know, I want you to know that if you have trouble here, uh, we'll do everything we can possible to help you because if there's a mistake, it's our mistake and we will do what we can to make your time here fruitful and and I was so astonished to, to be greeted in this way. I mean, it is an amazing thing, isn't it, to think of this great college that that's what that he said. And he said, the hard part for you was getting in here, and now it's our job to look after you. Of course, I never forgot that when, when teaching. Coming to England, you, you got a job soon in Corsham, a smaller college, maybe a traditional college, but you met very important people there. It, it gave you an in quite quickly. Yes, I, 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 the reason I came to England was because uh, it was 1966 and I was leaving Yale uh, with my MA degree. So a friend of mine is English, suggested that I go to England for a year. And he gave me the name of 10 art schools and I wrote to all 10 and I sent them slides. And one, the Bath Academy of Art, which was at Corsham, wrote back and offered me a job. So I accepted. When I got there... I was astonished because it was an absolutely wonderful art school. I look back on it, and probably of all the schools, as a, as a well-rounded, well-sophisticated school, it was probably the best art school I've ever taught in. And again, it was a very golden. Mo- it was their golden moment too. I was getting lucky again on that. Uh, and there were very interesting people teaching there. Most of the people who taught there came down from London, but because we were always there, everybody who came from London came to see us. We'd go to the pub every evening. There'd be different people coming from London. So I met very interesting British artists through this contact, which wouldn't have happened if I'd been going back to London, and it wouldn't have happened if I'd been... I might have been at a different... If I'd been at a school in London, I wouldn't have met all these people. It was because of this particular circumstance. So, re, you know, right to this day, these things are, stay very important. That it, When I, I was curating the Royal Academy show this past summer... One of the people who was honored in that show was Tom Phillips, who had worked on this this transformation of Victorian novel called The Humanities. And he showed something like 500 pages from this doctored book that he's been working on. Well, I met Tom Phillips at Corsham. He said he was in the pub every night, and, and he started in the pub where I'm sitting there having a drink with him. And then 50 years later, very nice. Of course, one of the things that happens when you get to be my age is that you discover there's lots of circles that get completed. In the book, you mention your residency in Cambridge. Tell us about the use you made of that and the heat in the in the room, for example. I love the detail of that sort of thing because it makes it real how important a good space is. My experience of England and of Europe had been coming as a as an American with dollars, and suddenly I'm an English person. I'm I'm working on an English salary. I'm not used to it, and I don't know how to do it. I really, I can barely believe that you can survive. Survive. I don't even know now how we survived. So that if I, the studios I had were freezing cold. Everything, you could never take care of anything properly. It was very, very. All the circumstances were very, very difficult. And then going to Cambridge. Uh, first of all, it was a comfortable place to live. Then I had this beautiful, comfortable studio. It reminded me, of course, of Yale because suddenly you to be in the company of so many brilliant people. I, as, as the artist-in-residence, I was a fellow, and so I would go to High Table, where everybody 
made fun of me at the t- at table, but but it, but it still was very interesting and very interesting people. So, it, but so in general, it was a kind of breather for me. At the end of that time, the oak tree, which is the work that has become the best known thing I've done, is came in seventy three. Well, I left Cambridge in seventy two, so it's really the the nurturing place for what happens. To be honest, I think when I got there, I was teaching, and of course teaching involved traveling, and I was exhausted, and so it gave me a reprieve. How did the oak tree change your life? The thing about the oak tree is it's a completely absolutist work. It takes into account everything it touches on. It answers it all. It doesn't allow for much breathing room and what it didn't allow for was the next work I knew as soon as I'd done it that I had done something really quite special I knew I'd done something possibly quite important and but also that I was very unlikely ever to be able to do anything that had in a single thing have that degree of absolute purity and conciseness that sums up things so it made it very difficult for me to know how to proceed. I, I couldn't even do a variation on it without diminishing it, or what was the alternative? And in the end, it gave me the idea of going back to another kind of basic, and that basic was drawing drawing a thing separate in the world that has no context, no nothing. When I started to make the drawings, I had no idea where that would lead. And if you had told me in 1978 that I'd be sitting here all these years later, and I'm still doing virtually the same thing, I'm still drawing the same kind of things, I'd I'd have been horrified at the thought of it. And there was a time in the mid-'80s where I felt I was feeling trapped by what I was doing, and I tried to step out of it and do slightly different things, but I came back to it because I had the sense that it was the only thing I'd ever done which was almost entirely my own. I'm in territory that's not crowded. I can do, you know, a 60-foot neon drawing on the side of a building, and I can do a postage stamp. I can do an Olympic poster, an installation in a church. I can do paintings and drawings. Very few things allow you this range of things. And then, and because, you know, there's a sense in which my, my work is very subject matter, high-end subject matter, because there's all these objects... There's a sense in which I'm not really interested in them. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, if you say a word over and over again, it starts to become meaningless, it, or it starts to become lose its it loses its wordness. Its word. I kind of think that's the same thing about the drawings that I do. It's like saying them so many times, you can forget them, walk away from that. I'm thinking of that important show, drawing the line in the White Chapel. The introduction you wrote to that, you mention about how we look at the past and present, and you talk about how the present influences the past more than the past influences the present. And just speaking of the oak tree, I was curious to know, how do you look on art from other decades of yours now, retrospectively? One of the things that's I'm increasingly aware of as I get older, and I, it doesn't, it seems to me not properly commented on, is that the art that's done at any one time can never be done again. It can only be done during that time. 
and that's true even of an artist. There's things I did, you, you know, very early work. That in the, you know, the first works I showed were box pieces. I did them in the late 60s. I, I'm very fond of those works. I'm proud of them, and I like them. And there is absolutely no physical reason or whatever reason for me not to do more of them, except I can't. They are the me for which they were a live possibility, something living and growing in me, something of discovery. It's gone. It's over. And I, it would be an empty exercise to try to you can't re, this is why we don't paint impressionist pictures this is it's because these things have their live moments so even in an artist's own life there are the things that sit in different places within that life you can revisit them but you revisit them as a stranger you revisit them like somebody else revisiting them i think anybody who says to you i have no regrets is either a fool or they're lying. I think everybody must have regrets about plenty of things. But I but I don't regret the work that I've done because I just think, well, it's there, isn't it? It's just a fact. I just, that's what I did. And I often used to say when I was teaching to students, uh, if you're thinking of doing, if, the, if you have an idea for doing something, for goodness sake, do it. Because even if it's not any good, at least it's there. And if you don't do it, it's n- never going to be there, and it will never have the possibility of being even bad. It won't have any. It, there's a very big difference between something that you hold in your head and something you manifest. And to manifest anything is to give it a kind of presence, a kind of existence in the world that changes things. But as long as it sits in your head, it has no. It's nothing really. You talk about being a lecturer, a teacher. And giving your students permission, in some way maybe that relates to that, to, to, to grab the moment, seize the moment, whatever the result is. Does that come from maybe something that you didn't have permission for a long time? You also talked about discipline and the negativity sometimes of discipline. Maybe discipline and permission are connected in some way. Well, I, I, I have certainly always uh, believed that the popular view of the artist as some kind of person who waits for inspiration, who lounges around until something wonderful hits them and then kind of does it. This is all absolutely nonsensical. It's a very, you have to have a very disciplined life. You're, you're trying to have a life in which you are generating everything important. You are generating what you do. If you don't, if you're not a disciplined person, nobody cares if you're an artist or you're not. Nobody cares whether you go to the studio or you don't. Nobody cares whether you make the thing or you don't make it. The only person who needs to care is you. And if you don't care enough, you won't do it. And the people who do do it, they're called artists. That's that's what artists do. So the and the question of permission was really just of making people feel comfortable with doing what it is that they are good at, that they want to do, that they're comfortable with. It's one of the terrible things that comes from a lot of education is that if something isn't difficult, tedious, filled with, with anxiety and difficulty, and that somehow it's not legitimate, when really the most important things come from pleasure. If education would be much better if it was based in a notion of of the pleasure of doing 
And really, that's the difference between art education and academic education. It's one of the reasons why academics are so so suspicious of art education, because it's so self-evidently pleasurable uh, that it can't possibly be serious. It, this cannot be, could not possibly be serious and be so much fun. And one of the most important things in life is discovering what do I like to do and then giving yourself permission to do it. And that, when I talk about permission, that, that's the kind of permission that I'm talking about. You also have um, talked about uh, the difference between the education of academic subjects, certain subjects, and you talk about them having stepping stones towards learning skills and then the teaching of art. And even though you're talking about different decades now, I'm sure a lot of people involved in art education, be they the educators or the students in art colleges today, would be very, very interested to hear what you have to say. Well, it seems to me that the, the most important thing about art education is to understand that it's not a subject in the same way that uh, academic subjects are subjects. It's not like philosophy or physics or French. In all of those disciplines, the discipline exists external to you. It is a body of knowledge. This is true of all academic This is true in physics. This is true in psychology. This is true in everything. In art, it isn't like that. In art, you have to jump in the deep end the first day because as as soon as you are doing anything in art where you are the one deciding what to do, if somebody is giving you an exercise, if somebody is telling you, giving you a project, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying when you are in the studio and it's you deciding I am going to do this. That is the equivalent of graduate study. That's that's the equivalent of a PhD study in another field. Even though you're working on maybe a tiny base of knowledge, experience, whatever, the the question that, that you're asking of yourself is this very big question. And so... Art education is about uh, you going to the subject, rather, and the subject does not exist as a subject out there like psychology does, regardless of whether you're... With art, it only exists because you're, you are the one who have to, bring, have to make it come alive. I've met hundreds of people over the years who I taught, and I say, what do you, what do, you do now? And they tell me, and maybe they're a psychologist or they're somebody, whatever, all sorts of different things. And I say, well, was, was your art education useful? And they always say, it was absolutely essential because it taught me how to be, how to be self-disciplined, how to make judgments for myself, how to change. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot, they, educationists and politicians talk about all the time, is people who are able to adjust to changing circumstances. There is nobody better adapted to knowing how to do that than somebody who went to art school. I think there's a lesson in art education because it's such a fundamentally different kind of education that could actually be very usefully expanded to a wider uh, number of the population. You are so associated as having taught some of the most prominent British artists and you have a piece in the book on Damien Hurst in particular but there are other artists of course too. What would you like to think that you that you gave them room to do? Well, I, I'm a very non-ideological person. I never had a kind of personal thing that I was looking for in other people. I certainly never wanted anybody to work like me. Some artists, when they're teaching, seem to want people to 
work in a way that's familiar to them. I, this never interests me at all. In fact, it always put me off. Uh, what I wanted to do as a teacher was to uh, enable people to have a confidence in themselves, confidence in their own ideas, confidence in their own capacities to be able to do what they wanted to do. When people do that, it's really quite recognizable. And if you look at the people that I taught, I'm always amazed when they're kind of grouped together in any way because the most striking thing about them is how independent they are of each other in terms of what they do. They're also very strong-willed, disciplined people. They are clearly focused. But all of the details of all of this is completely different in each one of them. But the general context of how they are as artists, how they are as people, is, is quite similar. And I would like to think that I had something to do with giving them uh, a sense that, that w these were uh, important and necessary characteristics in order to be able to create and sustain a creative life. Michael Craig Martin, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Michael Craig Martin talking with Clean and Yonloon in his London studio. Earlier he mentioned the oak tree, the artwork for which he's probably best known. Here he is reading the text he wrote which accompanies that iconic piece. To begin with, could you describe this work? Yes, of course. What I've done is change a glass of water into a full-grown oak tree without altering the accidents of the glass of water. The accidents? Yes, the colour, feel, weight, size. Do you mean that the glass of water is a symbol of an oak tree? No, it's not a symbol. I've changed the physical substance of the glass of water into that of an oak tree. It looks like a glass of water. Of course it does. I didn't change its appearance. But it's not a glass of water. It's an oak tree. Can you prove what you claim to have done? Well, yes and no. I claim to have maintained the physical form of the glass of water, and as you can see, I have. However, as one normally looks for evidence of physical change in terms of altered form, no such proof exists. Haven't you simply called this glass of water an oak tree? Absolutely not. It is not a glass of water anymore. I have changed its actual substance. It would no longer be accurate to call it a glass of water. One could call it anything one wished, but that would not alter the fact that it is an oak tree. Isn't this just a case of the emperor's new clothes? No. With the emperor's new clothes, people claimed to see something which wasn't there because they felt they should. I would be very surprised if anyone told me they saw an oak tree. Was it difficult to affect the change? No effort at all, but it took me years of work before I realized I could do it. When precisely did the glass of water become an oak tree? When I put water in the glass. Does this happen every time you fill a glass with water? No, of course not. Only when I intend to change it into an oak tree. Then intention causes the change. I would say it precipitates the change. You don't know how you do it? It contradicts what I feel I know about cause and effect. It seems to me you're claiming to have worked a miracle. Isn't that the case? I'm flattered that you think so. But aren't you the only person who can do something like this? How could I know? Could you teach others to do it? No, it's not something one can teach. Do you consider that changing the glass of water into an oak tree constitutes an artwork? Yes. What precisely is the artwork? The glass of water? There is no glass of water anymore. The process of change. 
There is no process involved in the change. The oak tree, yes, the oak tree, but the oak tree only exists in the mind. No, the actual oak tree is physically present, but in the form of the glass of water. As the glass of water was a particular glass of water, the oak tree is also particular. To conceive the category oak tree, or to picture a particular oak tree, is not to understand and experience what appears to be a glass of water as an oak tree. Just as it is imperceivable, it is also inconceivable. Did the particular oak tree exist somewhere else before it took the form of the glass of water? No, this particular oak tree did not exist previously. I should also point out that it does not and will not ever have any other form but that of a glass of water. How long will it continue to be an oak tree? Until I change it. Michael Craig Martin there reading on the oak tree for Arts Tonight. And the book on being an artist by Michael Craig Martin is published by Art Books. On next week's Arts Tonight, historian Jonathan Barden, author of Hallelujah, the story of a musical genius and the city that brought his masterpiece to life. That's Handel and the City of Dublin. Join us then. Goodbye. Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, is produced by Cleon and Ian Loon. RTE Radio 1.